If you have your Bibles this evening, I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. Tonight we reach the end of a long journey through the book of Exodus. Kind of like the people of Israel, right? A long journey. Tonight we come to the last chapter of the book of Exodus. And I was thinking about the way that Exodus is structured, the way that it's set up. And really you have two major sections in Exodus. You have the first half of Exodus, which is primarily about God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt and from the bondage that they endured there. And then the second half of Exodus is primarily taken up with the covenant, with the establishment of the covenant between God and his people, with the giving of the laws at Mount Sinai, and then uh, with the instructions and the, the setup of the tabernacle. And I thought one way to keep that in your mind with that structure of Exodus is you could think of the first half of Exodus as redemption and the second half of Exodus as relationship. Redemption and relationship. And so you have God saving and rescuing a people, and then you have God relating with a people through covenant. And that's very much the way that our lives as Christians can be described, isn't it? Uh, our, our relationship with God can be described as redemption and then relationship. That God saves us, he rescues us, and then we enter into a covenant with him, a new covenant through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we relate to him as a son or a daughter to a father, as children to their God. And so tonight we come to the end of Exodus. And as I was thinking about the second half of Exodus, really there's a critical moment in the, the, the history, in the, in the relationship between God and his people. It is a critical moment that creates all sorts of tension in the flow of the story. And that critical moment comes when Mo Moses is up on the mountain meeting with God and the people are down below worshiping a golden calf. That, that moment is like a crisis moment in the relationship between God and his people. And you can feel that, that tension, can't you, in, in the story where God threatens to destroy the people. And rightfully so, because they had violated the covenant. God threatens to destroy them, but Moses intercedes. And then God says, I'm not going to go with you. I, I won't destroy them, but I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to dwell with you. And so that creates another tension in the story. And Moses intercedes once again on behalf of the people and says, Lord, what's the point of going if you're not going to go with us? And so that, that creates that tension. And, and on each side of that crisis moment, on either side of that, you have the tabernacle. You have the design, the instructions for the tabernacle, and then you have the work being done, completed on the tabernacle. And in chapter 39, where we ended last week, all of the pieces of the tabernacle had been finished. All the vessels, all the, the poles and the, the curtains and all the pieces were there, finished according to God's instruction. And now in chapter 40, what we have is really the resolution, the climax, if you will, the resolution of that crisis. And that is, can God dwell with a sinful people? Can God live with a rebellious people? 
At one point in Exodus, God says, I can't go with you because if I were to go with you, I might destroy you along the way. And yet now here in chapter 40, we see where all of this was moving. This is, this is the, the conclusion. This is the climax. Can God dwell with a rebellious people? And the answer is yes. Gloriously, graciously, he can. Because he is a God who is, yes, righteous and judges sin, but he's also a God who is gracious and merciful. And through atoning sacrifice and the forgiveness of sins, he can dwell with sinners. And so God comes home. He comes to rest in the tabernacle, a finished uh, sanctuary for his presence, and he comes to dwell in the midst of his people. And that's where this whole book has been moving toward. This whole book. Going all the way back to the beginning when God called Moses in a burning bush, God said to Moses, I'm going to cause you to rescue my people, and I'm going to bring you back to this mountain, and you will worship me at this mountain. That's what the whole book is about, is God rescuing a people and then dwelling among them and relating to them, their God and they, his people. And so in Exodus 40, we see the conclusion of this story of God meeting, living with his people. Exodus 40, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting on the first day of the first month. Place the ark of the covenant law in it and shield the ark with the curtain. Bring in the table and set out what belongs on it. Then bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the ark of the covenant law and put the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. Place the altar of burnt offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Set up the courtyard around it and put the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it and all its furnishings and it will be holy. Then anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils. Consecrate the altar and it will be most holy. Anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate them. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments, anoint him and consecrate him so he may serve me as priest. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics, anoint them just as you anointed their father so they may serve me as priests. Their anointing will be to a priesthood that will continue throughout their generations Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars, and set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent as the Lord commanded him. He took the tablets of the covenant law and placed them in the ark, attached the poles to the ark and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table 
in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain, and set out the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Let's bow in prayer together. Merciful Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this message of Exodus that your servant Moses has given to us. Father, help us to see the importance of your presence among your people, of your people worshiping you in holiness and truth, in the importance of your people obeying you and following you. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for your, your redemption, and we thank you for the relationship that we have with you through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless our time in your word tonight, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Tonight, as we look at Exodus 40, I want us to focus our attention on four truths, four truths about God and about who he is and about how he relates to his people. And then for each one of those truths about who God is, there is a corresponding response from us. So a truth about God and then what that implies as far as a response, a proper response from us as his people. And so in the first part of this chapter, we see God giving instructions to Moses for the final construction, the final putting together of the tabernacle, of the tent of meeting. And I think what this first section teaches us is that God delights in proper worship. God delights in proper worship. And I think one of the things that we've seen through this whole section of, of Exodus with the instructions regarding the tabernacle is that God cares about how he is worshipped. God cares about how he is worshipped. And that makes sense because God is the most glorious, most majestic, holy being in the universe. He is one and there is no other. 
So God is zealous about how he is worshipped. And it's important for us, I think, to think about the fact that there is no greater thing, no greater duty, no greater joy that we can be engaged in than to give God glory. God is the most glorious being in the universe. Therefore, he delights in his creatures reflecting that glory back to him and and ascribing to him the glory that is his. And there is no other, there is no higher thing that we can engage in than to give God glory. And in this passage, and really leading up to this as well, we see that God gives instructions about how he is to be worshipped. So the corollary then from us, our response then, if, if God delights in proper worship and he gives instructions on how to be worshipped, then our responsibility then is to worship God in the manner that he requires, isn't it? Which means that worship of God cannot be man-made. The worship of God cannot be manufactured with our own wisdom. We've seen in Exodus what happens when the people of God try to manufacture worship. And when they try to do worship in the name of God, but using their own ingenuity and their own ideas, it ends in disaster, doesn't it? So Moses is up on the mountain and the people say, we want to worship God, but we want to see him while we worship him. That's man's idea. And so they made an idol out of a calf. That's man's idea. That's following the traditions of Egypt and their gods. And it resulted in disaster. God had already told them how to worship him. You can't worship me visually with images, with statues, no other images, no likeness of anything, no other gods. I and I alone am God, the Lord said to his people. He told them how to worship, but when they substituted that form of worship with their own ideas of worship, it was not pleasing to the Lord and it resulted in their judgment. So we need to, when we worship the Lord, we need to, to the best of our ability, seek to humble ourselves before the word of God and worship him in the way that he prescribes. That means that our worship services should be centered on God and centered on his word so that there's a reason why the primary components of our worship, of every worship service, is singing. Because the Bible says, come and sing and make a joyful noise to the Lord. There's a reason why the teaching of the word, the proclamation of the word of God is central in our worship because that's what the Lord said is to be a part of worship. That's the pattern and the, and the prescriptions that we see in Scripture. There's a reason why prayer serves as a component of our times of worship, because we see that modeled in Scripture. So the things that we do in worship of the Lord need to be driven by Scripture. Breaking bread together in the Lord's Supper. Baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These are things that the Lord has given to us to worship Him. And we need to, to the best of our ability, do those things in accordance with the word of God. But let me add this, not just in form, not just outwardly, not just in, in rote routines, but in substance. 
from our hearts in spirit and in truth. So the Lord delights in proper worship. Therefore, we as his people in relating to him have a responsibility to worship him in the way that he prescribes. Secondly, I think this last chapter of Exodus teaches us that God delights in our full obedience. God delights in our full obedience. You see in verse 16, and then really through verse 33, an emphasis on Moses fulfilling everything that God told him to do. It begins in verse 16. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. And then, interestingly enough, you see Moses as the subject of all the work that takes place on the setting up of the tabernacle, all the way through verse number 33, and it says, and so Moses finished the work. Moses obeyed. And now here, Moses is representative of the people, isn't he? Because there's really no way, humanly speaking, that Moses could physically set up all of these things by himself. So he needed assistance to set up the, the poles and the, the curtains and to the Levites to move in these holy vessels into the tabernacle. But Moses is attributed with this work because he is the representative of God before the people. And under his leadership, under his influence, this tabernacle is set up. And Moses, as representing the people, is set up as a model of obedience. And the Lord delights in that. We need to just stop and delight and revel in this moment in Israel's history. That at this point in history, everything is exactly as it should be between God and his people. Don't, don't read backwards to Exodus 32 at this moment and the golden calf. Don't read forward to the book of Numbers and when they don't have faith and go into the land of Canaan and have to wander 40 years in the wilderness because of it. Just stop right here, focus on this moment, and see a God who relates to his people and dwells with them and a people who obey him. And that's the picture that we have here in Exodus 40, and God delights in that. And so the implication, the correlation of that then is obvious, isn't it, that we should obey God. God delights in his people obeying him, therefore we should obey him. The second half of Exodus is about a people who have been redeemed relating to God in covenant. So this whole second part of Exodus is really kind of a, a description of the Christian life and kind of a, a, a story, if you will, of the Christian life and the way that it unfolds. And you can see a lot of the elements of the Christian life in our pilgrimage with the Lord in this last, last half of Exodus, you can see when we sin and we fall before the Lord. You can see the Lord's uh, chastening hand on his people. You can see our repentance and our turning from our evil ways. You can see our fellowship with the Lord. You can see our giving to him out of the abundance that he has blessed us with, out of a cheerful heart. You can see our obedience before him in the commands that he gives. You can see our worship in his presence. This last half of Exodus, in many ways, describes our daily Christian life. Sinning before the Lord, but then finding his forgiveness, and worshiping him, and obeying him, and giving to him. The Lord delights when his people obey him. So let us obey him in fear, in reverence, but also in joy 
there can be a joy, a great joy and a fulfillment and a satisfaction in obeying our God because that's what he made us to do. He made us to do that. And so when we obey him and live in accordance with his word, we feel that sense of fulfillment. This is what I'm made for. I'm made to glorify God and honor him through my life. To give my life, as Paul says, a living sacrifice to the Lord each and every day because of what he has done for us. We feel that sense of wholeness because of what God has done for us. So God delights in proper worship. So let us worship him in that way. God delights in full obedience of his people. So let us joyfully and reverently obey him. And then in verses 34 and 35, we see the emphasis on God delighting in dwelling with his people. God delights in dwelling with his people. In verse 34, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Just stop and imagine that for a moment. Just try to picture that. Can you imagine that sight? Here you are, thousands of people, thousands of people gathered around this portable sanctuary that has just been finished. It's a brand new year. Talk about a New Year's celebration, right? The text says, do this on the first day of the month of the first of the, of the new year. This is their new calendar. This is their new year. This is exactly one year to the time that they came out of Egypt. And this is God saying, this is a new beginning. And here is this tabernacle, this sanctuary, and the people gathered around it, and it's beautiful. It's been well made. It's been constructed according to God's design. And then you see visibly the presence of God in a cloud come to rest on it. His glory comes to rest with his people. And there is visible evidence that God is there, that he has fulfilled his promise. Remember that tension? Remember that question? Can God dwell with a sinful people? God threatens them. I'm going to destroy them. Then when Moses intercedes, God threatens again. I can't go with them. I might destroy them along the way. Here is the resolution to that tension. God comes down and he lives. He dwells with his people. This is the theme of the Bible. This is the theme of the Bible. God living with his people. He being their God and we being his people. Where does the Bible start? In the Garden of Eden, right? In the Garden of Eden. And it says that God made Adam and Eve and he put them in the Garden of Eden. And what was God's pattern? But to come and walk in the cool of the day with them and to commune with them. What do you see in the book of Revelation? You see a new Jerusalem coming down, a new heavens and a new earth. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more crying. It's a return to Eden, if you will, of perfection of glory and of John revealing to us at the end of Revelation and God will dwell with them. He will be their God and they will be his people. That's what the Bible's about. The Bible is about a holy God dwelling with his creatures made in his image. 
for his glory. In fact, there is much here that sounds just like Genesis 1 and 2 when God made the world. There are many verbal links, and you see it with Moses. You see Moses here. Moses set it up on the first day of the month in the second year. Moses set up the tabernacle. He put the bases in place. He put the bars up. Some of the the verbal language there is just like God making. God made this on the first day, and it was good. God made this on the second day, and it was good. And then you get to the very end of this description in verse 33, and it's just like Genesis chapter 2. And so Moses finished the work. And Genesis 2 says, and so God finished the work of everything that he had made, and he looked on it, and it was very good. And he set apart the seventh day, and he consecrated it. And in this passage, it says, Moses also consecrated the vessels and the tabernacle for the Lord. There's so many parallels that it seems that what is happening with the tabernacle is that the tabernacle is like a little miniature world, a little miniature cosmos, if you will. The Bible reveals to us that God's dwelling place is above the heavens, isn't it? So we have the skies, the firmament, we have space, the the heavens, and then even beyond that, we have the heavens where God dwells. And that's his throne, and the earth is merely his footstool. And yet when you read this kind of language, it's almost as if God is shrinking down in a little model form his universal throne, and he's coming to dwell in the midst of his people. God living with us. Can you imagine any greater joy in the universe than that? Than dwelling with our creator, not in fear, but in perfect love and harmony and joy. God delights in dwelling with his people. Therefore, we should delight in dwelling with God. Draw near to me, and God says, I will draw near to you. God delights in living with his people. We should delight in dwelling with God. And God is with us even now, isn't he? He's with us at least in down payment form, in the language that Paul would put it, a down payment in the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit as a promise of the future inheritance that we will receive. We have God's presence with us. When we gather together as the people of God, we have God's presence with us. We should delight in that presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that presence of the Holy Spirit in our church as we gather together. We should delight in that. We should delight in coming and and dwelling with God. We should delight in coming and praying and kneeling on our knees before God. We should delight in coming and opening up his word because God delights in dwelling with his people. Let us delight in him. Lastly, in this passage in verses 36 to 38, we see that God delights in guiding and protecting his people. God delights in guiding and protecting his people. It says that in all the travels of the Israelites, they followed the Lord. When the cloud lifted, they went with it. They followed the Lord's directions. When the cloud set down, that's where they would camp and they would set up the tabernacle. And so verse 38 says, So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night 
in the sight of all the Israelites during all of their travels. That's a description of our journey of faith, isn't it? In all their travels, the Lord was with them. And the Lord guided them, and they followed him. He watched over them, he gave them direction, and he protected them from their enemies. Let us, therefore, follow God's guidance in our lives. God delights in guiding and protecting his people. So let us delight in following that guidance and in, in building our lives under the shelter of his wing, under the protecting hand that he gives to his people. How do we follow the Lord's guidance? The number one most important way that we can follow the Lord's guidance is to read his word. That's the number one way. God has given us instructions in his word. We believe in the principle of scripture alone. That we are not, we're not given direction, we're not given revelation from God in other means, but we are given revelation from God by means of his word. And that through scripture, through the wisdom that God has revealed to us, that is how we follow in his path. He's also given us his indwelling spirit, hasn't he? His indwelling spirit takes that word of God. So, so not alone, but with the word of God, the Holy Spirit takes that word of God and he, he plants that in our minds and he continues to transform and mold us according to the pattern of that word and after the image of Jesus Christ. That's how we follow the direction of the Lord. And we know that he watches over his people, doesn't he? We see through Exodus, we've seen through, as if we were to move forward into later on in Numbers and Deuteronomy, we would see the Lord's people encounter many enemies and the Lord delivered them out of them all. And it's a reminder to us that as Christians, we will face many trials, many difficulties, many enemies, but no one can pull us from the hand of our Father in heaven. No one can separate us from his love. Paul says in Romans 8, nothing that you can imagine not nakedness or sword or future or death or famine or anything in all the world. Not even the past or the future, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. So God delights in guiding and protecting his people. Let us delight in following that guidance and in living securely in that love and protection. Exodus is about God's name being honored and God living with the people that he has redeemed, living in relationship with them. So we have been redeemed. Let us then seek to live in relationship with our God. He is our father. He's our deliverer. He's our shepherd. He's our guide. You can fill in a number of different labels there, everything that God is. Let us relate to him in that way. And in so doing, may his name be glorified. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who redeems, a God who rescues and saves. We thank you for the redemption that you gave to your people when you brought them out of the land of slavery and bondage and brought them into your presence at Mount Sinai. 
We thank you for the redemption that you have given to us in rescuing us from our bondage to sin and death through the redemption of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for us on the cross. And Father, now, because of your grace and the work of your Son for us, we have a relationship with you, a relationship of peace, a relationship of love and of mercy, of forgiveness. We have the privilege of coming before your throne and praying to you in your presence. We have the privilege of coming before your word and listening to you and hearing your wisdom. We have the privilege of your abiding spirit with us every single moment of our days. So God, now that we have been redeemed, may we continue to relate to you as you being our God, our Father, our Deliverer. Lord, be honored among your people. And Father, we desire, we long for, we look forward to the day when we can live with you in eternity in perfect peace, when sin is no more, when sorrow is no more, when death has been defeated, and we can live with you in eternity in a new Jerusalem, in a new heavens, and a new earth forever and ever. God, we long for that day. And so may your son Jesus come. And we pray this in his name. Amen.